Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Chris Larson, the co-founder and the executive chairman of Ripple. Ripple Labs has been on the cutting edge of blockchain and crypto technology since being founded in 2012. They've created Ripple, a currency exchange and remittance network for enterprise customers, as well as XRP, one of the largest cryptocurrencies in the world as measured by market cap. Prior to Ripple, Chris also founded Prosper Marketplace in 2005, and if that's not enough, before that, he founded eLoan in 1996, which became the first company to freely provide consumers FICO credit scores. Chris is active in working to advance pro-consumer regulation in the financial sector and is an incredibly impressive leader, founder, and changemaker. He was an amazing guest, and I can't wait for you to hear the conversation. He shared so many insights that still have me wondering about the future of finance. In our discussion, we delve into the regulation of cryptocurrencies, transparency in the financial system, the socioeconomic impacts of crypto, the climate impact of crypto and how it can be dramatically reduced, and the future of cryptocurrency in America and across the globe. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let us know what you think on LinkedIn, Instagram, or shoot us an email at hello at scholarsoffinance.org. And don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review, and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues if you find it valuable. Hello, Chris Larson. It is so great to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. How are you today and where are you calling in from? Oh, doing great. And uh, thanks again for having me. I really appreciate it. We're right here in San Francisco, which I might add is not on fire. So that's a good thing. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm happy to hear it. I'm just keeping my thoughts and prayers centered on the rest of the country who are dealing with ash and soot oh, um, falling down from the sky. Ugh. Chris, I am so, so excited about our conversation today. I've been very much looking forward to talking with you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You um, with everything going on, I could only imagine how busy you are. So excited to just dive right in. I have so many questions and I know our audience is really excited to hear from you. Before we dive in, you want to just take 60 seconds and share sort of a bit about your background and just how you've come to be the, the chairman of, of Ripple today? Yeah, we got into the fintech world pretty early, sort of during the first dot-com sort of wave back in 96. And uh, we, we thought we'd try to be the Charles Schwab of mortgages and that ended up being e-loan. And we thought we could present things online in a, in a more holistic way and sort of cut out the middlemen. That was a lot of fun. Um, we went through some crazy internet booms in you know, 99 and uh, we went public. I think we've made some good policy moves as well with credit scores and privacy uh, we were able to do as well as uh, I think serve our customers real well. So that was a fun experience. So we sold that company in 05 and then uh, we started a second fintech company called Prosper, which is a peer-to-peer -peer lending company. And that was great for a couple of years. But you know, I have to say after you know the 08 crash and there was also some regulatory uncertainty in that market as well. You know, not entirely a fun experience, but learned a lot. And peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending kind of never really uh, gelled into a mainstream experience or product. Unfortunately, I think there's still something to be done there. It needs to be sort of revisited. 
because there really is some power there. But, you know, it ended in 2012, uh, at least my participation there. And that was right about the time that some very smart, really interesting people were all talking about Bitcoin and what it meant. And, you know, were there, would there be other versions of that that might improve upon it and got together with uh, some brilliant folks, way smarter than myself, and uh, were able to found what became Ripple. Now I'm the executive chairman of that. And we've just got an amazing team and just couldn't be more excited. Yes, Chris, your story is absolutely amazing. A serial entrepreneur, if I can call you on, starting a number of companies, uh, I think pioneering technology in finding outs for your the entirety of your career, right? I, I would really consider you someone who has been shaping the modern financial system, but doing it humbly. Yeah, doing it humbly, doing it through technology the best that you can. So my hope is to really dive in talking about cryptocurrency and the internet of value, right? I've called you one of the godfathers of modern cryptocurrency. Maybe we can coin that term today. But being that you were in cryptocurrency and a creator and an inventor, uh, founder in cryptocurrency so early, XRP is one of the largest market cap cryptocurrencies in the world. You're someone that I think a lot of people, especially your audience, will want to hear from. So the first question I want to ask is, what does crypto and the internet of value have to offer America and the world at a high level? Well, I think at the highest level, it's in some ways much like what happened with the internet, which was, as we all know, an absolute breakthrough in the way that uh, data and communications worked in the world. You know, before the internet, I mean, it was extremely expensive to communicate. Lots of people didn't have access to communication. I remember, you know, like I'm pretty old. So when I used to, as a kid traveling in Europe or a teenager, you know, I used to remember having to line up in front of these phone centers wait in line for a long time, and then you make this crazy expensive call to my parents. That was kind of the nature of communications, you know, back before the internet. All those walls have come down. So we take it for granted that, you know, look, we can communicate with anybody on earth basically for free with a single protocol of whether it be an email address or, you know, phone numbers too. We take that for granted. That's it. There's complete interoperability of communications and data. That's not how it's worked in money uh, until now. So very much money has been like communications were pre-internet, very expensive. Uh, they don't interoperate, right? Every country is its own island. Billions of people don't have access, right? And the, the, the sort of the gatekeepers to all of that take enormous tolls and fees. And that's a bad thing. That's holding back the world. So when you look at where we are now, obviously, we have complete interoperability of data through the internet of data, the regular internet, we have pretty much the ability to send anything anywhere in the world for extremely low cost, right? So, I mean, it's mind boggling that someone can manufacture a shirt anywhere on earth, send it clear across the world, and it costs about four cents. And why is that? That's because we have this interoperability of uh, shipping. We, we love talking about shipping containers, right? But a shipping container really is a global standard of interoperability, right? So that container from can go from a factory onto a truck, maybe onto a train, shows up at a port, put on a ship, go to any other port on earth, and it's completely interoperable to any other train, truck, or warehouse, right? I mean, that's pretty mind-boggling, and that's great for the world, right? Great for the poorest in the world, great for the wealthiest in the world, but we don't have that with money. And, and because of that, it's actually not just holding back the interoperability and the um, access of money, it's also impacting the potential, the internet of data, and that ability to ship things anywhere in the world for very low cost, right? 
So it's almost like globalization, you know, it's three legs of the stool and only two stool, uh, two of those legs have been, have been built so far. And so the real promise of this internet of value, which is being finally enabled by blockchain technology and all those interoperability protocols, right? I mean, you kind of think, oh, well, we've had the internet, and, you know, Schwab's been online forever and E-Trade's been online forever, right? Isn't that the same thing? Well, no, it's not, right? Because again, that's just the data part of financial services of these companies that deal in value. It's not the value part, right? So the real cool thing that's going on now is companies, individuals, new startups, governments, uh, nonprofits, anybody now will have the ability to utilize that data internet and that value internet. So if you're in fintech, anything having to do with finance, which is basically the lifeblood of the way the global economy works, you're not just moving the data anymore, but also the value. And that is completely groundbreaking. And that is the completion of globalization. And that should usher in the full potential globalization, which, as you know, has been unpopular. And again, not because it's a bad thing, but because it's been incomplete. And now we're completing it. It's really exciting to think about what that might usher in. Yeah, I was going to ask you on that point about globalization, would love to hear you unpack a little bit more. Why do you think some are, are afraid of globalization? And I'm curious to hear with a few bullets, you know, what do you think globalization will usher in? Why is that something that you might encourage us to think about positively? Yeah, this is a really complicated question. So I want to, and I've modified my thinking on this recently after reading this really interesting book. I think it was called The Last Great, no, our, our, our last best hope i think it was the last best hope by george packer that's it that's the one you recommended that i read it it's a great book by the way thanks for the recommendation so i've been touting globalization forever right and i still absolutely believe we have to get there's no escaping it you can't be isolated but what i got wrong and felt guilty for the first time reading that book was yeah we were these big promoters of globalization it's all good it's all meritocracy prices come down opportunity all that stuff good for people in the world Absolutely correct. But it did leave behind tens of millions of my fellow Americans, right? I just didn't even think about that, right? And so, yes, we need globalization. We need efficiency. We need things working in a more fluid way. We, we totally need that for those other billions of people that are still left out of the global economy. And by the way, talking about why globalization is unpopular on that front, you know, generally, uh, Billions of people have been lifted out of poverty. If you look at China and you look at India because of globalization, all good stuff, right? But other people, billions have been left behind. And think about their experience. They might have the internet on their phones, right? Even the poorest of the poor have that, right? So they can see all this potential going on in the world. Oh, great. I'd like to have that life, right? They can ship things, right? Because that cost is low. But the money part kind of keeps them out. You know, if you're not engaged in the money part, you don't have access to the money part because it's too expensive and institutions won't serve you because they can't make enough money on you. And that's the reality of the pre-internet value world. You're left out. So think about that. You're, you're seeing it, but you can't participate. That's the worst thing, right? Before, probably you didn't even know what you were missing out on, right? So that's a bad thing. But again, and I've been talking about that for a long time, but I was missing out on that. Tens of millions of fellow Americans now have to compete with this cost structure that they can't possibly match. So I don't exactly know the answer to that, but we got to rethink that too. So it doesn't mean you stop globalization. That's the wrong move. That's a backlash. But we've got to work on both of those things. Complete the picture of globalization, but make sure that the people left behind 
also get the benefit from all that good stuff is going to happen. It doesn't just create a, another massively wealthy class, you know, and, and that's what's happening, right? The uh, wealthy and, and, and the poorest are, that, that problem is getting worse and that can't stand that way, right? Nothing else is going to work if you don't fix that. Anyway, okay, I'm getting too political here, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that is why I think the frustration of globalization comes from, from both sides, from the poorest of the poor that are left out but can see the potential and the people that until uh, the internet kind of came along, globalization came along, were doing quite well and now aren't doing as well. Got to fix both of those things. That is absolutely fascinating, Chris. I appreciate you sharing. And it actually begs another question. One thing I wanted to talk to you about today is accessibility. Many in the financial sector in fintech are committing to making the financial system more accessible right? by banking the unbanked. You've seen a number of startups proliferating to try to achieve this mission. CDFI is growing rapidly as well. Why is crypto especially useful for opening up access to the poor, to those who have less resources in achieving that mission? It's more than just crypto, but it's also these protocols built on blockchains and also these derivative technologies, which I would call interoperability protocols, which are kind of the children of blockchain. They, they wouldn't have been perfected and invented if it weren't for the light that was shown on the technology of blockchains, right? So it's not enough to say just the crypto, but again, the crypto was enabled by blockchains and then interoperability protocols also were kind of enabled by that same aha thing that happened, right? Kind of, very, you know, I would say you're standing on the shoulders of geniuses. Well, think, you know, things are getting built on and built and built. But all of those things together now make the costs of moving value and therefore of whether you call it banking, whether you call it payments, wallets, and now all kinds of new terms like DeFi, decentralized finance, right? Even things like NFTs for artists. Suddenly, all these new things that one, you probably couldn't do, and two, if you could do them, they would be so expensive, they were out of the reach of, again, billions of people. Now, all those things are incredibly inexpensive, basically frictionless, to the point that governments want to let them be frictionless. And, and again, important to understand, it can't just be the way, you know, regulators correctly talk about these things as being the Wild West. There's a lot of truth in that. It can't be the Wild West. So you, you will need some guardrails in regulation. That will add cost, but will also add safety. But nonetheless, this is a dramatic reduction in the fundamentals of those costs, the fundamentals of the access. And that now lets entrepreneurs and existing incumbents rethink the way things work and create new models that otherwise would not be possible. And we, we've heard that, you know, sometimes there'll be this Cambrian explosion of new businesses, ventures, products coming from the innovators brand new things that you wouldn't even, can't even imagine today, but also from the incumbents, which is happening. So that's super exciting, you know, because, you know, by and large finance, even during the internet stage, kind of boring. It actually wasn't the kind of shake up the whole banana like you saw with communications and data. You know, the Googles, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Facebooks completely shook up everything having to do with data and communications, right? But that didn't really happen in fintech until you're starting to see that now. And hence why I think the valuations of fintech suddenly, not just in the US, but all over the world, something fundamentally has changed. And, and I think you trace that back to blockchain, crypto, interoperability protocols, which are now newly enabling things you just couldn't do before. That's super exciting. I'm excited too, Chris. And it reminds me, I wanted to talk a little bit, you mentioned regulation and, and regulators earlier. 
And we're talking about globalization and how you bring the world together and interoperability protocols, cryptocurrency being a solution to that. You've said that crypto is being held back by American regulators and that countries such as Singapore and the UK have much more hospitable regulatory environments. Why is that the case? And is there a way the US can foster more growth in financial technology and innovation here? Yeah, and this is this is a big disappointment and I think a big danger for our country because, you know, one thing about the internet, we should be super proud. Like, America dominates the internet, right? And every market except China, and China, smartly for China's economy, dominated its own marketplace. But except for that, you know, the internet is an American success story like you've never, you can't find anything like that in history, right? And why is that? Well, it's because we have phenomenal innovators. We have phenomenal venture capital and capital markets to fund the earliest seed startups, the riskiest uh, projects, and then follow them all the way up until they go public and beyond, right? One additional ingredient there at the right time, I don't know, was it 97? And I think it was during the the Clinton administration, right? And then also there was another thing uh, with some international regulators, but they came up with a framework for, you know, uh, electric commerce. And that kind of put in this place these notions of sort of simplicity, consistency, right? Sort of minimalist regulatory burdens uh, that still protected. And again, nothing's perfect, but I think it was a framework that allowed these things to flourish and find their way, right? You could have easily back in 97 said, oh, come on, the only thing going on on the internet is just bad stuff, right? It's theft and, you know, just stuff that you want to hide from your kids and just Nothing of value here, right? But we didn't do that. We did it smartly. And holy cow, trillions of dollars of value have been created. Just the whole world has been fundamentally changed, right? Again, lots of bad stuff still. We're not at the end of the road. It'll be ongoing. But wow, that was great. We haven't done that yet in the internet of value. And in finance, it's, it's, especially in the US, it's trickier because we don't just have one regulator. We got like eight federal regulators, and then every state has its own series of regulators, right? And you don't have that situation in other countries. So in Singapore, for example, look, everybody's in the same city, the innovators, the capital markets, and, and, and the regulators, they all get together probably all the time. And that's worked out very well. Singapore has done an amazing job in, in probably having one of the best regulatory regimes in fintech bar none. So has the UK. And maybe the similar thing. They're all the same, basically, London, right? They all kind of uh, run in the same circles, you know, the tech, the capital markets and, and the regulator. And they have done a great job of both protecting their consumers and fostering innovation. Same with Switzerland. And you can go on and on and on. Even places like Brazil have done a great job. Japan has done a great job. So we are in UAE. I could go on and on and on. I mean, the examples are overseas. You know, where is the US rank now? Probably 10th. And the risk there is you do have the talent here. You do have these incredible capital markets all the way from seed to public and beyond. All the same stuff we had with the internet that led to success. The missing ingredient is this framework of sort of clear and consistent. We don't have that yet. That's got to come from the top. So you kind of hope that the Biden administration is going to see that we haven't slipped behind in a fatal way yet. But, oh, man, if we are taking that for granted, uh, we are in big trouble. So we've got to get our act together. And again, many of those eight federal regulators are phenomenal, right? I would say Treasury, FinCEN at this point. And you would have thought FinCEN in the early days was that's what everybody was afraid of, right? 
uh, how are they going to look at crypto, right? They've been great, actually. And they've been working on some very sophisticated things around working with the industry, for example, on crypto and the prevention of child sexual abuse material. They make great strides and, and, and they work well with the industry. And they're actually solving what potentially could have been a problem. I think that problem is getting solved. So all great. The Federal Reserve has worked really well in these areas for a long time. They've always been great. CFTC, I think, has been terrific. You know, you could go on and on and on. I think the one area that has been really problematic for the U.S., no surprise I'm going to say this, but the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, I know that it's a tough job. I know that they are well-intentioned in protecting folks. But again, it's got to be both protecting folks and fostering innovation. Otherwise, we are going to lose this one. If we lose this one, that is a huge blow to the country. It's a huge blow to Americans. All those issues we talked about, about finally getting the advantage of globalization, I think that goes out the window if all these innovators are going to Singapore and the UK, or even more concerning, are going to be run by the other very successful internet powerhouse, which is China. And they are way ahead of us. So we have got to start taking this seriously. And that has to mean that the SEC gives clarity. Uh, and clarity in both protecting consumers and fostering innovation. It's got to be both of those things. And it's got to be consistent and fair, frankly. And, and, and we haven't had that yet. And I'm hoping that we do get that. I hope we do too, Chris. And there, there's been so much talk, of course, about the SEC litigation with Ripple, which from my perspective seems preposterous. Can you explain to our audience the nature of the lawsuit, what's happening with the lawsuit and where it stands today? And then also how that reflects on the general regulatory climate and how crypto and DeFi players are adapting? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a perplexing thing. You know, XRP has been out there now for over eight years traded all over the world, 200 exchanges, depending on which site you use. It's you know the number three in terms of market cap. It's an established currency. And it was actually declared formally a currency by the Treasury Department, FinCEN, in a settlement back in 2015, which I, you know, to us, that was crystal clear. This is a currency. And as a currency, it's exempt from regulation under the SEC. That should be as a a commodity, a currency, and under the CFTC. So to me, that seemed crystal clear. But, you know, I think, again, these are new things, even though they've been around for a while. And I know the regulators are well-intentioned, but it's kind of this fight on, hey, who owns the regulation of this industry? And that's fine, but what they should be doing is making clear new rules. These are, these are new technologies. And I think a bit of the problem is Boy, trying to fit something like blockchain and interoperability protocols and cryptocurrencies, trying to fit that into rules that were established seven decades ago, I think that that's a recipe for things going badly for the United States. So I think the hope is that we get really clear rules that can protect consumers and innovators. But I'll tell you this, I think this suit is not just about Ripple. This is about the future of the entire industry in the United States. And so, you know, we hope that this can be constructive, but we'll have to see. We'll have to see where it ends up. But it's been very perplexing and very disappointing of U.S. leadership in such an important technology, which is now, you know, this is a $2 trillion industry and growing rapidly. So uh, we've got we've to get our act together. 
I completely agree. Have you viewed the litigation as an opportunity to advance the regulatory environment here in the U.S. and really work together with these regulators to help them see the light, right, so that the American regulatory regime can be pro-innovation and we aren't at risk of losing the tech cold war that we're in right now? <laughs> well, you know, if that's a case of turning uh, lemons and lemonade, I guess, you know, you always have to see the bright side. You know, I certainly wouldn't want to wish this on my worst enemy. <laughs> so, but, you know, it is what it is. And, <laughs> you know, hopefully this can help in the journey to regulatory clarity that, again, protects consumers, but also fosters innovation. We've got to get both of those things. Can't be one or the other. I wouldn't wish this on any of your worst enemies either, on anybody <laughs> for that matter. I appreciate you sharing. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a really challenging position to be in. But that said, very grateful that you and the team continue to innovate, continue to try to drive really meaningful causes forward in the face of all of this, while you have this in the background as a distraction. And I'm just excited to share this with our audience so people can get a little bit more clarity on what's actually going on. Yeah, and I think, you know, that is part of when you're in something new technology, there's no trail, right? So you're kind of blazing a trail. But again, after so many years, you'd hope that that trail was paved at this point, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that XRP was deemed a currency already by one regulator, you mentioned this before, there are multiple different regulators, I think speaks for itself. And when I think about cryptocurrency, and please, I've just turned 30 years old, Chris, I still consider myself a child, and I'm still learning a lot about the complexity that is cryptocurrency and IOV and DeFi. So tell me if I'm wrong here. But when I think about securities and everything that the SEC oversees, I think about assets, there is an actual tangible asset there. This is a portion of a company, this is a home, these are real assets that this security represents an ownership stake in. XRP seems to me clearly to be a currency, right? This is a store of value in and of itself that is traded and exchanged hands and used as a store of value for exchange. Can you just unpack that a little bit more for the audience and your perspective on that? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. All of these technologies were meant to be currencies. And that's what they are. So it was great to see Treasury formally declare that. But you think about what a currency is, it's a medium of exchange. So it's a value that can be exchanged with extremely little friction. And a security can never be that, right? A security can only be traded by broker dealers. So it defeats that whole purpose. So when a Treasury Department says something is a currency, they define that as a medium of exchange. And again, that's, I think, why currencies are exempt. From securities laws, right? Which just makes sense. And they are stores of value. So whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or XRP, whatever the use is in products that might be built by people that use the protocol, the fundamentals are they're, they're all used as mediums of exchange. They're all used as stores of value. The fundamentals of a currency, just like any currency, they're all divisible. They're all fungible. Currencies aren't like that. They're just fundamentally different. You have very different securities in a company, for example, Series A, B, you know, there's restrictions. You can't have that in a currency, which is, by the way, why you can never have a notion of green Bitcoins and dirty Bitcoins. That's a forked network. Those are two different things. The fundamentals of a currency is they're, they're all the same. So fungible. One's completely the same as another. So those are very unique characteristics of currencies. And of course, with cryptocurrencies, the added thing there is, well, there's no country behind it. There's no issuer behind it. 
There's no counterparty behind it. And that's what really makes them completely unique, which of course means that they have to be decentralized. So for example, if Ripple went away tomorrow, fine. XRP, the, the protocol continues on as if we never existed. And again, that's an important notion as well, because I think even when you have central bank digital currencies, which are becoming quite popular now, those are kind of growing up. And those can be very interesting, depending on what the, again, counterparty, the country allows them to be used to do. But they're always going to be fundamentally different from a cryptocurrency, which simply has no issuer, has no counterparty. That's a very unique thing in the world and something that's very useful in the world. And it's a key building block to this internet of value and all of the, you know, all the services we can't even imagine yet that are gonna be built on this brand new thing that humans were never able to do before. That's super exciting. It's gonna to lead to all kinds of great things. But again, not if the regulator is kind of standing in the way with a notion that doesn't make sense. And that's what we really have to get over. Thanks, Chris. You mentioned a green Bitcoin versus a dirty Bitcoin. It actually, I think, is a perfect segue into a whole slew of questions I wanted to ask you about energy and climate, which is something I know you're incredibly passionate about. I've already learned a lot from you on this topic in our several conversations preceding the interview. And so if you don't mind, I'd love to just dive right in on climate and energy. The largest cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, of course, uses proof of work as its validation protocol, which I understand leads to the production of 22 million metric tons of CO2 production annually, which is about as much as the entire country of Jordan. Ethereum has announced that it is changing its code to the more climate-friendly proof-of-stake model. And of course, XRP uses federated consensus. You wrote in what has been one of my favorite Medium posts in the last several months that Bitcoin and other proof-of-work-based cryptos need to separate themselves from this early technology that is not built for today's climate needs and embrace low-energy, low-carbon alternatives to secure their ledgers. Can you unpack a little bit for our audience the difference between these protocols and also how Bitcoin can make the move to proof of stake or federated consensus and what can be done to hasten that process? Yeah, absolutely. But first of all, I think it's important that people have to understand the climate crisis. This isn't an issue anymore. This is a war. I'm sitting here in San Francisco. I was up with my kids and my extended family camping up in the Redwoods, three hours north of San Francisco, just this weekend and beautiful redwoods. And, you know, you have to look around and go, hmm, I wonder if this will be here next year. There's literally the big fire was, I don't know, 30 miles away from us, right? This is bad. Like the world is literally on fire. Okay. The IPCC report that came out two days ago, it's unequivocal. This is human cause. It's a crisis. We're way past the point where anybody can deny this, right? So anyway, that's the first thing. So in that context, it is also, now get back to regulation, it is just unconscionable that the only protocols that have been given a blessing, and it's kind of a weird, fuzzy blessing as it's turning out, are the dirtiest cryptos on earth. I mean, the cryptocurrency industry is a big industry now, right? $2 trillion. About half of that, if you include Ethereum and Hats off to the Ethereum folks, Vitalik, who led the charge to switch over from being a dirty crypto to a clean crypto. That is awesome. All these protocols and the people you know that believe in them are very tribal, all kinds of mud slinging back and forth. I get it, whatever. But I tell you, on this one, the guy's a hero for switching over. 
because he's helping this war on climate. And again, bizarre that the U.S. regulators, although it started obviously in the Trump administration, but now continuing in the Gensler administration to embrace the dirtiest crypto through their policies. Crazy. I don't get it. We got to change that. But anyway, I think everybody's moving over, right? You know, about half the crypto now is clean. They're using consensus algorithms, whether it be proof of stake, uh, federated consensus, and many others, by the way, that really don't use meaningful amounts of electricity. The XRP ledger is carbon neutral. It uses the equivalent of about 50 US homes. You compare that to the Bitcoin protocol, which is really now the heavyweight of proof of work protocols. And it's just, it's the mechanism it shows way back in the day, brilliantly designed, brilliantly created, that's rewarding the validators, the validation of the state of the ledger by giving them additional Bitcoins every 10 minutes. But again, it, it, it rewards those that can guess this complex, increasingly complex mathematical equation. And that takes huge computing assets, which gobble up enormous amounts of energy. And to your point, likely huge amounts of CO2, because until now, most of the mining was in China. Most of that was based in fossil fuels of some kind. Really, really dirty energy was probably pumping out even more than the numbers you quoted. Obviously, those, some of those are estimates, but could have been as high as 60, 80 megatons. And the thing about it is, if you look at some of the boosters, like the Michael Saylors, who say that Bitcoin's going to increase 200% a year for the next decade, well, you'd be in the gigatons of CO2. Crazy. But beyond that, forget the CO2. Imagine that all of that mining was from green energy. And there's a big movement afoot to do that, right? So China now, very interesting, in the last couple of months, basically has decided, you know, they were like 60% of the mining, most of it probably using fossil fuels. They've completely changed it too and said, we don't want any of that here. And have basically been kicking out the Bitcoin miners because I think they saw that it was hurting their efforts to get the carbon neutral by, I think it is 2050, right? So what's going on now is they're going to other countries, Kazakhstan, that's not good because that's all fossil fuels. But now coming to the US, there's a lot of smart entrepreneurs who now are creating renewable energy mining. But I'm sorry, there's no such thing as green mining because it's not necessary. They should be changing just like Ethereum did. And by the way, now I think the founder of Zcash also announced they're switching from proof of work to a different low energy protocol. Hats off to them too. But the Bitcoin folks need to make the switch as well. It's unconscionable that right today you're gobbling up on the order of 70 and depending on the price, because it's correlated price, 70 to 140 trillion watt hours of energy. Look, if all of that was green energy, that's not good because that green energy should be used for green steel making, green aluminum, green concrete, agricultural usage, direct air capture, green hydrogen, you name it. I mean, there are just so many battles that are being waged in this war and that green energy needs to go elsewhere. A big part of getting carbon neutral is don't use energy where you don't need it. And you don't need it to confirm the state of blockchains. You just don't need it. So make the damn code change. And I tell you, I, I just don't think it's going to happen voluntarily. And by the way, look, this is not some secret AI that runs Bitcoin. Okay. It's about 20 to 30, very influential, very wealthy people that are going to make that decision between 
the core developers, exchanges, and the miners. By the way, there's a fascinating book out I've been reading called The Block Size Wars. And it's fascinating because this kind of goes back to one of the big changes that was proposed to increase the block size and sort of how that played out. And how it was a very small group of people that prevented that. So again, this is a small group of people that are incredibly wealthy that could make this change, but they're not going to do it voluntarily because they've been making this pitch for 10 years and it, it just doesn't hold water anymore, right? There's other systems that work as Vitalik, the smartest guys in crypto, knows and did. So the Bitcoin folks can do this too. But I think it's going to come down to government regulation. He was going to have to, for example, cut off some of these zero emission credits that these companies are taking who also own dirty crypto. I think that's probably a good target. Probably take away some of the money transmission licenses. You see the Californians doing something like that for fintechs that are propagating as greenwashing that's going on and to call out somebody there, Jack Dorsey. Come on. I mean, he writes this absolute propaganda on how using more energy is going to lead is the secret to a renewable future. Come on. I mean, nobody believes that who has anything to do with climate. And the regulars have to punish that kind of nonsense. I think they should take away the money transmission license. So that would get them in line. So anyway, I think that's what it's going to take. Look, it's a war. We've got to fix this. All right, I'll stop there. I was going to say, keep going, please. Don't stop yet question for you. You talk about this small group of people who could make this change to Bitcoin from proof of work to proof of stake or federated consensus, these other validation protocols that would save enormous amounts of energy. Sorry if I can't cite your stat there. It could certainly be in the hundreds of trillions of watt hours. Absolutely. Of watt hours, right. Hundreds of trillions of watt hours. Two questions for the audience here, a layman like myself. First, how much work or how difficult would it be to make the switch? And second, what incentives do they have not to do it? What's stopping them? Yeah, so how much work? It's going to be political. It's going to be like the block size wars. There's going to be a, a group that says, hell no, this is Satoshi's vision. Well, okay, I wouldn't use, you know, <laughs> don't use Satoshi's vision because that's another fork of Bitcoin, but they're just absolutely religious. I heard somebody say about the notion of switching, I called it heresy. Well, come on, heresy. that's a religious term. It's, this is a technology. There's no place for religion when it comes to technology. So, but that's the rub, right? And again, look, you can't blame them, right? This is not like these are people that made a big mistake and they're kind of running with their tail between their legs. These are people that have been involved and behind one of the most successful asset appreciations in the history of earth. And they're incredibly wealthy and they're not shy right now. They're, they're like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio on the front of the Titanic, you know, and king of the world, right? So they're not going to go away quietly, right? And that's a problem. And then of course, on the, another element there is billions of dollars have been putting into these mining operations. So it's as big as the, you know, bigger than the coal industry. And look how hard it is to shut down coal mines, right? So what is it going to take? It's going to take probably, uh, the, the interesting thing now, unlike the block size wars that happened, you know, was that 2015, 16? You know, that was still, it wasn't really mainstream. It was still kind of its own, still funky, strange technology fought amongst technologists, right? That's not where it is today. Right now, what's driving the adoption are corporations and funds and Wall Street and European funds. 
So that's a very different proposition. Uh, Soros is now investing in quote unquote green mining. Again, no such thing. Fidelity is you know a good company. They're backing all kinds of these green mining things. Again, there is no such thing. But that's kind of good because you, you can put regulatory pressure and you can also put pressure from, I think more and more people, especially the younger folks, are going to be looking at climate and getting a war footing. There's no time to spare. So you go after the people backing these things. They start backing off. You got to get Tesla to divest. Uh, probably the only way is threaten their zero emission credits. Which is Ill- they have to be ineligible for zero emission credits if they have dirty crypto in their supply chain. I think that would probably wake up Elon on this. And look, I love Elon. He's done more for climate than almost anybody. But his Bitcoin investment has is just strange, very strange, and not within keeping with his core values of Tesla, as I understand them. So, but I tell you, if they start backing away, then look, Ethereum probably starts overtaking Bitcoin. And that's the kind of thing that I think wakes up those 20 or 30 people and say, look, if we don't make this change, we're going to fall behind. That's what it's going to take. A lot of pressure from a lot of different directions. I think so. But, But look, the pressure's out there. There are so many projects now working on whether it be mapping supply chains on where's the CO2 coming from, but also putting pressure. Uh, you saw what happened to Exxon. I mean, three board members from a small holders. They basically hijacked that board. Awesome. Same thing happening in Europe. So there's going to be lawsuits. There's going to be pressure campaigns. Artists are going to start getting together and demanding this. Uh, but the young folk, they're going to be putting up with this stuff. Again, this is not tech bros that are sitting in Palo Alto and chewing all those on their, their disruption. This is now mainstream and everybody's got a stake in this. And we are all suffering the consequences of trillions of watt hours being needlessly used. So I'm sorry, it's not, you don't get to play and, and not think that other people are going to have a say in this when the stakes are this high. So I think that's how it's going to play out. And I've heard from a, a few different folks, and you've also mentioned this a bit in your, in your Medium post, that you could liken the switch from proof of work to proof of stake to some code changes, several lines of code to switch to proof of stake. Maybe that's reductive. Uh, I'm sure there's more to it. I'd imagine there's more to it. Yeah, I mean, there's you... definitely more. It, it, you know, look at what Ethereum is. It's, it's a multi-year process, even after you get through the politics. But could it be done by 2023? I bet that was, that'd be possible to do it in a careful way that protected the value of this. Look, this is not an anti-Bitcoin stance. So it's in their interests to make this switch. But this climate thing, this is so bad right now. And how is this going to be in five years or 10 years? And it's really going to be acceptable that gigatons of CO2 are coming out of this thing? Or even if it's all green, that what would that be now? Even petawatt hours? I mean, what are we talking about here, right? Exawatt hour? I mean, this is unacceptable. It's not going to stand. It's just not going to stand. Yeah, you mentioned the PCC report. It's code red. Uh, it's code I think red. Yeah. it's code red right now. 4,000 pages commissioned by the UN explaining to us it's code red. That's right. So I couldn't it, agree more. And this is one of the easiest fix. Like a lot of stuff in, in climate are really, really hard. Green steel, super hard, concrete, you name it, planes, ships. This is a code change to save trillions of watt hours and growing. Come on. 
it strikes me as unconscionable, frankly. I appreciate you sharing. I remember when you and I first began talking about this, I was completely ignorant to this. And I've been talking to a lot of my friends, advisors, directors, donors of Scholars of Finance about this. And a lot of people I talk to, some are increasingly aware, but there is a knowledge gap here. People aren't aware. Yeah. They, are, yeah. they just think crypto is not good for the world. Like cryptocurrency, all cryptocurrency is pouring carbon you know, into the atmosphere, but they don't realize there are actually different mechanisms that can dramatically right. reduce that, uh, that outlay. Yeah, and that's gonna become so obvious when Ethereum has completed what they're doing, right? Because the entire Ethereum community is going to be waving this flag, like there's no tomorrow, right? So it's, it's not gonna be a secret anymore. And of course, you also, there's two pretty troubling graphs, I think, for the Bitcoin folks. Even like, what, three years ago, two years ago? Where was it at? A tenth of where it is today, the price? It also means the energy was a tenth. So you could hide that under the radar. Well, you can't hide it under the radar now. And of course, the other graph is climate. That's going the wrong way. So that's an ugly graph. Uh, you, it's too big. It's too big to ignore. Come on, right? Make yeah. the damn code change. <laughs> that should be a <laughs> Thank bumper you. sticker. We need to make sure this podcast episode is sent directly to a handful of people. There's about 20 or 30 people that we need to make sure it's sent to. I'll leave that to you, Chris, because I'm sure you're the one that knows them personally. So we'll leave that ball in your court. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll cancel my email immediately. Yeah. <laughs> a couple uh, rapid fire questions here before we wrap up. I know we're coming to the top of the hour. So you said in the past that innovators in the financial sector should build, not disrupt. Nonetheless, new technologies promise to change how standard financial services like credit ratings are delivered and used. I'm just curious, how are new technologies poised to make finance more transparent? I know transparency is something you're, you're really invested in. It's because, first of all, it allows new models and new models that are going to be super efficient, which means you don't need intermediaries that in the past, so I use the example of car loans, right? So what was the main job for that F&I person at a car dealer? It's basically to hide what's going on, to hide your true credit score, and therefore the hide the true rate you could get for that true credit score. That's the whole job. And then they make a huge commission. The old saying back then was, in confusion, there's profit. So again, in, in the lack of transparency, there's profit. And the, the greatest thing the internet has done, whether it be the Charles Schwab's of the world, or whether it be lending online is one, you take out the middleman. So you take out those weird incentives. Companies do better when they, they show everything. So that's phenomenal. And that's unstoppable. And that will continue to move forward. Now you can go too far on transparency because there's a flip side of transparency is going to be privacy. So if you're too transparent or too flip about showing everything, kind of revealing that's kind of the problems of social networks. Maybe too much is being revealed. So you don't want to go, I mean, there, there was a bunch of those fintech startups way back in the day trying to be fintech social networks. They never worked. Hey, let me show you everything on my credit card statement and, uh, and I'll tweet about it. And I'll, seriously, there was a couple of those models. Of course they didn't make it, right? So that's too much transparency. That's, it's privacy being violated, right? And especially with finance, which is you know, it's like healthcare, right? This is, this is powerful information. It could really embarrass people, right? So that's the flip side of that. But it's all, it's really all good news, I think, for how these things are going to play out. I'm happy to hear it. Yeah, from my time at SoFi, 
when I was working at SoFi prior to jumping into SOF full-time, we did talk a lot about this. How do you engage people with one another around their finances? It's an incredibly complex discussion. There's a ton of nuance there culturally within the U.S., across different nations. So it's definitely, it's an interesting point. I was going to ask one thing that I've heard you talk about in the past and that I've seen emerging is alternative credit scoring. Right, emerging as a way to use new data sources and statistical models to give strong yeah. credit scores to more deserving people than previously could be served. Is the credit problem going to be solved? What, what do you think are the next steps there? Yeah, it's an interesting one too. I mean, that was kind of the basis for peer-to-peer lending was that you were going to get social elements, peer pressure within your group, because frankly, that's the way ancient credit systems have worked very well. Like if you look at credit systems in the developing world, Vietnam, for example, which was kind of what Prosper was kind of built on where it'd be kind of a group. And if a person borrowed and defaulted, well, it affects your reputation within that small group. And so there's interesting things you can do with that by putting additional data into credit scoring around. And Brazil had this too, right? It's sort of a credit pod, if you will. So that's very interesting. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is going to be credit discrimination. And also, again, privacy. Unless it's a tight group, you really want to have this person in your community that wants to burn your house down because you defaulted on a loan, screwed up their credit, right? So it's tricky territory. Peer-to-peer lending in the U.S. never got there for all those reasons. But I think we need more entrepreneurs to be, go- and lots of other models that have been tried and failed, but you need the entrepreneurs to keep steaming ahead. There is a right combination there that's going to be good. And again, you need you know, regulators, which I think generally you have in banking today that might allow some of these things. This is where the notion of sandboxing comes in. Although there was some guy at Brookings Institute, he had this great term, which I apologize, I can't remember his name, but credit to him. He says, no, don't call it sandbox because you bury bad things in sandboxes, right? So he called it greenhouses. So I like that, right? So, you know, little sprouts of trees and then they become, make bigger ones and then finally take them out of the greenhouse. So you need a lot of that allowance by regulators to find the right, key that's going to be the right combination of things there. Thanks, Chris. With a few minutes left, can I fire two quick round questions at you? Sure. All right. First, you are arguably one of the most successful fintech founders, serial entrepreneurs over the last half century with multiple successful financial technology companies and one of the early innovators of cryptocurrency and DeFi as we see it today. There are a lot of our listeners, they're students, they are recent college graduates. Some of them are dreaming of building their own fintech company. A lot of our listeners are investors, people 10, 20, 30 years, 40 years into their investing or leadership careers. What are a couple of quick hits of career advice that you would offer all of those listening who want to try to transform the world through finance from a career perspective? What career advice might you offer everyone listening? So some of the best advice I got from a couple of teachers was cut the lifeboats. Like when you're young, you fail a couple of times, who cares? Especially in America and especially here in Silicon Valley, all they think that's spreading to other places, the notion of failing as a badge of honor, that's really what sets America apart. You really don't have that notion as much in places like Europe where it's just culturally not okay to fail or it's a scarlet letter. So yeah, cut the lifeboats, try it out. If it doesn't work, try it again, try it, you know, and if you're, if you can handle the stress, you can always get a job. And in fact, your employer is going to probably look at that as good experience. So, so that's pretty freeing because I think a lot of people come out and they overestimate their risk profile. So don't do that while you, you, know, while you have the shot. 
I think it's always good to start with another co-founder, but just one. Don't try this 3D chess thing with three or four or five founders. I, sometimes I talk to people, uh, they come out of business school and it's like, yeah, we all want to start a business. And there's like five of them. And okay, so who's the CEO? Who's the, oh, we, we don't know yet, right? And okay, that's not going to work. But two, I think is good because it helps you balance the stress, you know, with somebody else. That's a good thing. And then another one I always kind of like is you kind of have to ignore advice from people you, you respect. And what I mean by that simply is like, you know, when you're trying to something new, people kind of default to, well, if you could do that, it would have been done. You know, it's the old, don't pick up the dollar on the street because if it was really there, someone would have picked it up already. It's that kind of thinking. You see a lot of that. So you, it's a tricky thing where you need to reach out and talk to a lot of people and connections, but you kind of have to filter it and when you hear the naysaying, you're going to have to almost ignore that. And I know that's tricky, but if you believe in what you're doing, nothing's going to stop you. So you just have to stay at it. Chris, that's a perfect segue into my last question. You know, I quit my job at SoFi two years ago and I cut the light boats. I cut my comp by 60% to become a startup nonprofit CEO of all things. While my co-founder, Ryan, continued his financial career and is supporting the organization. And some of my family were like, what are you thinking? This is absolutely insane. You've got this rocket ship career. You're doing very well economically. Why would you jump out and start this organization, Scholars of Finance? You can just be on the board like you have been and just keep growing it, keep doing your day job. So I relate to your advice personally, and we'll just plus one all of that to any of our listeners who are thinking of doing something big or innovative. I found it rewarding. And people like you, Chris, who have came alongside me to mentor me, give me coaching, kindly invite me to your home and, and walk me through how I can be a better leader. It's been so helpful. You've invested a lot of time in scholars of finance. You're going to be speaking to our two students in a couple of weeks privately, right? Directly live. I wanted to ask, you're so busy. You have so much going on and you've been so generous with your time with scholars of finance, right? Helping us achieve this mission of inspiring character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. Can you tell our audience, our investors and our students listening, why have you chosen to get involved with SOF and get behind the mission? Yeah, well, I think it's great what you guys are doing. It hopefully is going to have a long-term impact, right? It kind of all starts really at the youngest level. So I, I really believe in that. And I think it is important for folks that have been through it a little bit uh, try to give back. There's, oh my gosh, what was the guy's name at Schwab? Oh man, he wrote a great book on this. I apologize, I cannot remember his name. But in this book, he always wrote about having a, a generosity of spirit. Uh, I think Schwab was built on that. And uh, that was a great line. So where I went to school at Stanford, they try to instill that as well. Like if an alum contacts you, you, because we were helped by other alums, try to help go back the other way. So I think it's important. And we can get others to be thinking that way. I, I think that's a good thing. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it and appreciate you helping us do that and sharing all the insights you have. I know we're at the top of the hour here. Chris Larson, want to thank you again for your time, for coming on the Investing in Integrity podcast. I'm excited to have you again in the future, maybe a year or two down the line to get updates on how everything's at Ripple. Hopefully we can talk about Bitcoin, making the change to proof of stake and celebrate some good news, long-term good news. Um, thank you again, Chris. So, no, so grateful for your time. I, I appreciate it very much. And I believe the name of the guy, Schwab, David Patrick, may look that up. If I got that wrong, you can cut that out. <laughs> that's, that's correct. Yeah, give him credit. But thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.